Welcome to the Christina Crow Podcast, Making the Invisible Visible. I'm your host, Christina Crow. I'm a psychotherapist and a relentless mental health advocate in Ontario, Canada. I'm bringing you my clinical insights and research-based facts on modern mental health, and I'm going to bring you the experts I rely on to share their wisdom with you. Let's do it, guys. Let's dig a little deeper and make invisible things visible. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Christina Crow podcast, where we connect the dots in search for more balanced mental health. Today, we are making invisible things visible for the good people of Ontario, including their therapists, talking about the landscape of accessing quality mental health care. In today's episode, I'm talking to the president of the Ontario Association of Mental Health Professionals, Jane Holloway. Jane is a registered psychotherapist who's also a certified member and the president of the association. Jane serves on the Advisory Council of Eating Disorders of York Region and has developed and facilitated programs for those with eating disorders. She's also done community presentations to raise public awareness about the risk factors and serious health effects of eating disorders. She's passionate about learning and has worked as a teaching assistant for graduate students within the Faculty of Behavioral Sciences at Yorkville University serves as a peer facilitator with the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario. Jane is a trained facilitator and public speaker who has had many years of professional and volunteer experience working with people who have special needs and has several years of experience working within medical clinics. And she has her own private practice in Richmond Hill where she provides psychotherapy to individuals, couples, and families. Jane, thank you so much for making time out of your schedule to be here with us today. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. <laughs> it's great to have um, the, the president of the association that I belong to, that I'm really proud to belong to, and have served on the board in the past and had a wonderful experience um, being a member of the board and learning about the inner workings of the administration, really, of mental health in Ontario in a lot of ways. For sure. It, it, it's a, a multifaceted endeavor. And uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think I will ask you to start us off with is just, can you just explain to our listeners uh, what exactly the association does, who it represents, mm. why we have it, all that stuff. So OAMHP stands for Ontario Association of Mental Health Professionals. What makes us unique is we represent, you could say, the full spectrum of mental health service providers. So within our midst, we have uh, consultants, we have uh, counselors, psychometrists, psych associates, psychologists, um, registered psychotherapists. Uh, we may have um, people who work within the school board, either as guidance uh, counselors or people doing school-based assessments. Um, we have some social workers in our midst. So the, so the full spectrum of mental health care providers. Okay. Um, and is, is it a large group? Yes, yeah, so we're we're now oh I, I believe over three thousand uh, strong in Ontario. We do have some areas outside the province, but the majority obviously in Ontario. Yeah. So okay, this is this is a question I've actually always wanted to ask. You know, sometimes when we talk about like wait lists in Ontario for mental health, 
Is it because there's not enough mental health clinicians? Like between the psychologists, the social workers, the psychotherapists, are there not enough of us to service our population? How do we, how do we know? So I think Right now, we have a number of challenges. One can be trying to connect somebody with the appropriate provider at the appropriate time. If that doesn't happen, that can create a glitch or a wait list issue. Um, and, and so speaking to OAMHP, that's one of the reasons we value all of our members. Um, so for example, if somebody is um, in need of medication, that person obviously needs to be seen by a psychiatrist or a medical doctor or a nurse practitioner. But then beyond that, what are the other services that that person needs? If they're needing of, say, uh, a formal diagnosis, obviously they're going to be seeing a psychologist or a psychological associate. Um, but then for talk therapy components, uh, or if for talk therapy components, they could be seeing a social worker, a registered psychotherapist, um, yes, a psychologist or a, a psych associate, um, or they may benefit from seeing an addictions counselor. So a, a non-regulated professional. Um, I'd say we have we have both regulated practitioners as well as unregulated practitioners, and both serve a really important role in the landscape. So I think one of the things that creates wait lists is um, an overwhelming spectrum where the moving parts are not well understood sometimes by the practitioners themselves, and then not understood for obvious reasons by the the members of the public who are seeking the service. And then layered on top of that, there's the insurance issue. So for people who have insurance, they may not be covered for the practitioner who could best serve their needs. That creates a further barrier. Um, yeah, so those, those are a few of the things that can create, create bottlenecks. Um, yeah, just a few. A lot. Yeah, it's a <laughs> lot. And then, so if I'm just a regular member of the public, I've decided it's time to, you know, talk to somebody. <laughs> decided I've just been stuck or struggling for too long, or my kid has, or myself and my partner have. Then how, where do I begin? Do I Google find a therapist near me? Or how do I know which type of practitioner I need? Yes. For example, oamhp.ca, one of the services we offer is you can go onto the site and look for find a therapist and you can look for a, in terms of what you need you can look for a therapist in terms of where they're geographically located and it's not to matter quite as much in the virtual world uh, and also what are you seeking services for is it for low mood uh, anxiety um, so you can look for that um, the other thing I, I, I touched on insurance so do you have private insurance or workplace insurance if you do, checking to see who you're covered to see, are you covered for a social worker? practitioner? Yes. Um, so are you covered for a social worker, a registered psychotherapist, psychologist, all of the above? And um, for how many sessions and or for what dollar amount per year? Um, so I, the way I practice, I always want people to come in with their eyes open, understanding uh, what kind of benefits they have. Um, 
if they don't have benefits. And so, so many members of the, the public are working in uh, environments where there is no private coverage. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or it's or just so it's like 500 bucks or 400 bucks. Yes. Gee, yeah. Because that yeah. doesn't get you very far. Yeah. So I, I mean, and, and I hate to ask members of the public to, you know, especially if they're trying to get help to be advocating for themselves, but oh, one that's aspect, you in Ontario. Yeah. I mean, one aspect is okay. Advocating for um, healthcare or workplace benefits or increasing those. So if it's $500, you know, that will not give a lot of sessions to somebody who's seeking, seeking help and increasing the number of practitioners within the coverage. So, right. yeah, um, I, I can give you a quick example. So sure. for example, That'd be great. Um, I mentioned I, I work with people who have eating disorders and I've had instances in which, say, persons referred to me and uh, I check with them, you know, do you have coverage? They may have coverage, but they find out they don't have coverage, say for a registered psychotherapist. And that creates frustration and, and bottlenecking again, because they, so they've, a referral has been sent to me, then I have to have a discussion with that person to redirect the referral to a colleague for whom they may have coverage. Uh, can create a bottleneck if that particular type of practitioner has already um, got a full practice. So, yeah. For everyone that's listening, you know, you can find a therapist, quote unquote, that you can use your insurance for, you can pay out of pocket for. Most of these receipts are tax deductible medical expenses at tax time. Sometimes that is nice and sometimes it's really relevant to you, right? Depending on your situation. Or you can try and access psychotherapy through a public program um, or through, I don't know, like hospital program, an outpatient program um, or a public agency. So what, is, what does that look like in terms of how long does that take? Hmm. Yeah, so the, <laughs> the, yeah, so the wait lists um, for either, you could say, um, a hospital or clinic-based program, they tend to be quite long. Uh, again, because I think we need to expand through our workplaces more mental health uh, coverage through insurance. So as a result, because there are so many people who don't have that, there, there's a lot of reliance upon the public system. So in that case, oftentimes it may be a referral through uh, a doctor or a practitioner within a clinic to um, either a hospital or clinic-based program Um, and then the person is connected with that program. Now, in terms of other options, there there are, uh, you could say there are agencies that are community-based that many times will offer sliding scale services. Um, They may be receiving, say, United Way funding or or have some funding so that they're able to uh, assist people who are not able to pay a standard fee. Yeah, you know, and I will say as a, as a, private practitioner myself and somebody who um, has a group, I belong to a collective, there's a big group of us across Ontario and we cover PEI now as well. Well, one of us covers PEI. We receive like no funding, no nothing from the government grants, nada. And we offer, almost everyone offers some amount of sliding scale if they can. And we offer, we have a free psychotherapy clinic for for people uh, locally in our community who meet certain criteria. And and I think a lot of private practitioners do. 
Yeah. And so there's often this idea like, oh, therapy is so expensive. And, you know, running a therapy practice is very expensive and becoming a therapist is expensive. So I guess it's all relative. But you can always ask your therapist if they have room for a sliding scale spot, for a lower fee spot, even if it's for a period of time until your, you know, your insurance benefits kick back in again um, to help you out. It's more important to deliver the care. Um, you know, if it's within yeah. reason, right? If that, so yeah. it, any, I guess my point is that it's always okay just to have a conversation with your practitioner. Does Absolutely. It, does it seem like maybe the problem is, is not that there's not enough therapists, there's not enough therapists in the public system willing to work within that system. And it's more attractive for the therapist to be outside of the public system, I wonder. Hmm. I can't, I can't speak for all, all therapists. No. I yeah, think, I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of public versus private, I think that there can be um, advantages to both. I can say there's another, I guess you could say there's another bottleneck there in terms of sometimes in terms of publicly funded. Um, and I think this is education to employers as well. Um, education to government is again, you get, um, situations say within a hospital they are hiring particular kinds of practitioners but not other practitioners so maybe they're hiring a social worker but they're not hiring a psychotherapist i think there are instances in which there are practitioners who would be willing to work within uh, the public system but they're not being hired because of issues around tax, it becomes too complicated for some of these uh, clinics to, to work with some practice. It brings up a really important barrier to care in Ontario and disparity amongst all of those. So if, if you love your therapist and your senior therapist and you find somebody that's great and they happen to be a registered psychotherapist and you're seeing in a private practice, not only are you paying probably a comparable base rate, depending on your area, because it does vary, you're actually paying extra because you're paying HST on top of that. And registered psychotherapists are the only healthcare practitioners in this province that have to ch charge HST. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that creates a significant barrier because, so even if somebody has a cap of $1,000 through private insurance, that 13% tax um, is deducted. So that's fewer sessions that that person has in terms of coverage. So there's, there's that as a, a barrier. If the person's paying out of pocket, yeah, they're, they're paying a, a surcharge. They're being taxed on what I consider an essential service. I mean, mental health care is health care and it's, it's an essential service. So a person's being taxed on that. Um, and going back to the previous point, it's, it's sometimes because of that very issue that, and, and I've seen this happen with um, job postings, where say a, a clinic may be hiring for a practitioner, but they're not hiring or not listing for RPs, registered psychotherapists. Yeah, they don't want to deal with those. They don't want to deal with the tax. It's a huge administrative burden. Like it's, you know, for, for the parties that are interested in supporting small businesses, because most RPs are small businesses in this province, they have an unfair and inequitable operating cost and tax burden and accounting fees and all the stuff that comes on top of it that, other, uh, that others don't. And, and so they're disincentivized. <laughs>
You know what I mean? Yeah. And it creates, a, again, another bottleneck because you could say there may be unused capacity there amongst some of the uh, RPs who could be working within clinics if that barrier were, were removed. If you or your child was given a diagnosis of ADHD, but then not really told what it means or how it might change throughout their life, maybe you've been given a prescription for medication, but not had the opportunity to engage in the rest of recommended treatment, either ADHD adaptive therapy or ADHD coaching. Maybe you've known since you were a kid that you have ADHD, but the early attempts at treatment didn't go so well. Maybe you're a parent who's worried about making the right choices for your kid regarding medication. If there's gaps in the information that you think you were supposed to have gotten, then this is the course for you. DIY ADHD is a self-paced online course created by yours truly, Christina Crow, a registered psychotherapist in Ontario, Canada. You'll get all of the foundational information to fill in all the knowledge gaps you might not even know you have reclaim your life. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about this resource, decide whether or not it's for you. And if you move forward, use the promo code CCPODCAST for 15% off. So it's election season in Ontario. Yes, it is. As of today, and we have mental health week. Yeah, and we have the election <laughs> month too. And so, okay, so I will tell you, and and I won't ask you to comment specifically on this, but I'll want your advice as to what to do about it. So, as a therapist who also, you know, I'll say for the people listening, like if it's hard, if it's hard for a therapist to find a therapist, like I can't even imagine what it's like for the average person outside the system to find their therapist because you know, it's, it is hard. It's, it's hard out there. And, and so getting to this place where you, you kind of see all these issues that come up, these barriers and, and every week there seems to be a new announcement from all the different political parties about how they're injecting money into this and mental health and they're funding this community and that community. And then I kind of read through these press releases with a, I, I try to have like a balanced critical eye and it really just looks like a lot of administrative programs are being set up and I don't I never know how much an announcement is actually it's just an announcement about a transfer that came a year ago anyway or it's it's not actually creating more clinicians or more spots to see people and treat people really well right up front like you go through this coaching program and do this manual first and then you know what I mean and maybe that works for a lot of people but when people come knocking at my door like when the political candidates come knocking what what should I hold them to task on that is specific enough that they can't bamboozle me with oh my party's doing all this like I need like a yeah but so what because the, from what I read in the paper, the wait lists have only gotten longer in the pandemic. Yes, I, I, I mean, yes, exacerbated by the pandemic for sure. Uh, yeah, so we had wait lists that were long that are now longer because of the, the pandemic. Um, and some people having gone through precarious employment situation up and down through the pa- pandemic means there's less 
affordability around uh, seeking mental health service. Yeah, so if a candidate comes to my door, um, I I want to talk to them about removing as many barriers to mental health care as possible. And, and one of those, of course, would be, um, and I know we're in the middle of a provincial election as of today, and you know, the province can't remove the full tax amount, but if they remove the provincial portion, that I think that also sends a message to the people at the federal level and to other provinces to say, okay, look, um, remove at least the provincial part of, of, of tax to make it more affordable. The, the HST is provincial, right? Well, we have harmonized sales tax, but there's a provincial part, there's a federal part. So it's like if we, if the provincial part can be removed, um, that, that will go a long way. And then the other aspect of that is, and this may not be as, as something that gets talked about as much is right now within the province of Ontario, the College of Psychologists of Ontario, there are PhD registrants and there are MA registrants. And the MA registrants um, are, are very well trained. Um, they've had many years of supervision before they, they practice independently. MA meaning master's level, just for everyone. Yeah, master, yeah, so master's level, um, often referred to as psychological associates. And they are performing an... A, a really essential function oftentimes within the school system. Yeah, no, it will. And even in the, in the community, they're providing psychoeducational assessments, ADHD, assessments. like we rely on those services a lot. The school system so backed up. We don't even, I mean, it's so important. Yes. There. Yes. It very, things very backed up within the school system. Again, you can imagine what's happened as a result of the pandemic and issues that kids are going through as a result of not having in-class learning for a you know, on and off two years. So there, there is a move to close registration for people with a master's degree. Does that mean that they will no longer allow them to register with that college? They're not going to be removing people who are currently with the college, but acknowledging, of course, that, you know, we're in an aging population, right? And benefit anybody. What's what's that all about? Yeah, it it does not seem to to benefit anybody. Um, it, It could have a devastating impact upon educational assessments, school-based assessments, um, helping kids. What What is the implication? So for all the MA level therapists that love doing that work or that, doing, or that are aiming to do that work, maybe they're in school right now. What does that mean for them? Well, okay. So for somebody who wants to go to, I guess you could say a master's terminal program for destination registration with the CPO, um, it has a, you could say a bi-directional impact. So if somebody's within one of those programs, what does that mean for them? Yeah. What does that mean? Career has suddenly changed, right? Yes. Um, And then there's the, the further impact around, well, what happens with those educational institutions? Because if you're an educational institution, I mean, are you going to continue offering a that kind of a program if there's, you're saying, okay, well, well, where does that student, when they graduate, where do they end up? What's their career path? Is this like a foregone conclusion that this is happening or it's just a discussion? 
I would say not a foregone conclusion, but it's definitely something that's um, that's being got momentum promoted. And what's the role that the government has in mediating that or stepping in? I mean, so the colleges are all administered by the Ministry of Health. Just for everyone listening, there's like 27 health colleges, I think, and the Ministry of Health is the Grand Poobah above above all of them. So. Whoever the minister of health is, would have a role to play there. Absolutely. So it's it's a, a matter of looking at that and saying, okay, this does not appear to make any logical sense. It, it harms uh, Ontarians. It harms uh, particularly young Ontarians, and you know puts them at risk. Um, further wait lists. So you know, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it <laughs> is there like a backup plan being proposed for what i'm not aware of any backup plan which which is what's further worrying yeah all right folks <laughs> we've got a couple things for you here that so that and i will say right now oemhp we're, we're coming out with uh so for our members there will be a key points list uh that we'll be disseminating to members so that they can Hand that list out when somebody comes knocking at the door, an MPP or a candidate comes knocking at the door, or that they can email to um, their candidate. Okay, I'll make sure that that whenever that's available, I link it in the show notes so people can click on that and kind of read through that stuff. If if you've got a fiery little advocate inside of you and these things are important and you want to speak up about it as well, because everybody can be an advocate. I just want to circle back to something that kind of came up earlier that affects everybody, uh, therapists themselves and all Ontarians alike, which is how waitlists and demand grew during the pandemic. And, you know, from my experience, you know, we've never been busier and we've expanded through the pandemic to continuously try and meet the need that, that we have capacity to meet. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of people who reached out for therapy for the first time who might never had before, who, who were kind of like, whoa, like now's the time, which is amazing. And then there's certain pockets within mental health, like certain conditions that that got a lot more visibility because they suddenly expanded like eating disorders. So there's been a lot of discussion about how there's been a rise in eating disorders. And I've seen some interesting conversation about what might be behind that. And I was just curious with your, I'm not an expert. So within, with your background and the eating disorder work that, that you do and have been exposed to, can you share with us a little bit about like what's been behind all that? I always say that eating disorders are not about food not about food it you could it could say relationship with food it's it's a, a a coping tool that somebody may have fallen into um and it's often about control and and wanting to have a sense of of control within a world that can seem somewhat unpredictable so if you think about that and think about unpredictability in the context of a pandemic, everything that people held dear, all of those markers around you, family celebrations, um, predictability of going to school, to work, um, just going out and engaging in normal events, that came to a halt, job predictability. Um, And so for somebody who, may have struggled with an eating disorder and 
unconsciously using it as a, a way of, of having control yeah an uncontrollable world context okay. more than ever before yeah more than ever before this is this is going to come up um and it's also going to be exacerbated by unfortunately heightened isolation and i would say not just but particularly for younger people um going into that wormhole of social media and potentially being very influenced by unhealthy images. Yeah. yeah. Unhealthy images, unhealthy messaging, unhealthy, like not compatible with having a human functioning body. Stuff right. Like yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, and, and not as many, you could say checks and balances in place because with heightened isolation and fewer avenues to connect with actual people, yeah. um, people may be more influenced. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I heard someone too, like in high school, suddenly having to stare at yourself on screen all day, not normally a view that young people have of themselves, like literally. And even people at work who suddenly, a lot of people I know now turn their camera off for video meetings, like they hide their view. So they're not constantly like staring at the increasing wrinkles between their eyebrows and all the things that in the course of a day it's like you're constantly staring in a mirror which is not a natural not a natural thing um and and as I point it to the people I work with because again even before the pandemic people would be influenced by media images which are very rarely real and you know sometimes you see these photos where it say it will say this photo was not altered or airbrushed because that, you know, that tends to be the exception. And, and so, especially we've got young people, not just young people trying to compare themselves to something that's not real. Not real and not knowing that's what's happening. So in terms of maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking like, oh geez, you know, maybe that's me and I should talk to somebody about that. There's a point at which with an eating disorder that's active, eating disorders kind of, you know, for therapists can be the most scary sometimes when you, when you recognize that this is something that's going on. On the one hand, on the other hand, how often are, is your therapist in that first intake session asking you questions about how you eat and feed and your beliefs about your relationship with food as an initial screening? And I, and I bet you it doesn't happen a lot and they'll, they'll screen when it comes up. So when it starts to creep up, the therapist will be like, oh, gee, I think we should dig into this. But it's not necessarily a first pass part of the assessment. Arguably, maybe it should be. But so it can fester for a long time, I guess, is what oh, I'm saying. It can, it can fester for without a ever, Without time. ever talking about it. Like we can go to therapy for a long time and this can actually not come up. And it's not because you don't have a good therapist. It's because it's sneaky. And we live in a culture that makes it seem normal, all of these things, right? Right. And, and it's, it's uh, I mean, we're trained to ask a lot of screening questions, um, often say in relation to substances, um, but not in relation to the, you know, what a person is doing around, say, their eating, their exercise. So, yeah, we, we as uh, 
mental health clinicians, we have as part of our screening process, that aspect of, okay, we're assessing for a number of things, substances being one of them, often not looking at food, relationship with food and relationship, say with exercise. And it, it can start way before that. So even when that person is seeing their, their family physician, is the family physician asking those questions? And there can, be a, there can be a lot of assumptions around what a person looks like. So what, what can worsen things is if somebody gets up the courage to talk to their healthcare provider, regardless of the provider, about um, a disordered relationship with food and or exercise. That courage can be slapped down if the response they get is, well, no, you don't, you don't look like you have an eating disorder. But we're all drinking a little bit more these days. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and so there's, there's that aspect of, of you, if the person is trying to uh, put themselves forward. Sometimes healthcare practitioners are trying to be too reassuring too quickly. Right. Or, 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 or have a stereotype of, oh, well, if the person has an eating disorder, they're going to present as extremely thin. No, there, there can be so many, so many issues around eating disorders where the person's not going to present that way and they may be struggling significantly and may have been for years. Yeah. Thank you for outlining that because I think, I think it is something sometimes people have like a sneaking suspicion about and they're never really sure whether they should, whether it's worth bringing up, whether they should mention it. Like it's kind of, you drop a hint here or there and see if, the care partner, your healthcare partner picks up on it and runs with that ball. So, you know, yeah, that's a thing for sure. It, it just, so one more, you know, from accessing treatment point of view. So, you know, maybe you don't, you're not at the place where you need to be hospitalized. It's for a medical doctor to determine whether that's the place or not. Um, but, but if, but if you're not at that place, finding care in the community. So there's hospital programs, outpatient programs for families, because correct me if I'm wrong, is family-based therapy, that's first line, right? Um, family-based therapy for a, young person. for a young person can be extremely helpful. Um, I think it, it it's finding that best fit what works for that person, but oftentimes involving the family um, and supporting the family is also a key. Like everybody needs some support around it. It's never just like one person in a family unit that's got like a problem and needs to be fixed. You know, I think I want to dispel that myth. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's sometimes something where you could say parents, siblings, they're truly puzzled around what should I, or shouldn't I say, how can I help or support this person? Yeah. So, so having like someone with a lot of experience such as yourself guide, guide you is a wonderful opportunity to be able to have. Yeah. 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 To to have that space. Yeah. I, I said that thing, that line in there about drinking more, like there's also been those headlines that substance use has gone way up. And, you know, being trapped at home with your family, maybe people can understand that or the monotony of everyday life. And, 
you know, whether, whether you've really struggled in the past or it's something new, you know, there's, there's certain rules and all of our different cultures, subcultures, communities about what appropriate substance use is. And I find as a therapist, I ask much more specific questions now, like my, you know, my initial questions, like, you know, do you have more than three drinks in a night more than three times in the past month? Yeah. So I start to get really specific about what are we talking about here? What's recreational? What's social? And I base that on the Canada recommend the Canada guidelines, the Canadian for substance use, recreational drugs or um, alcohol. And then it's and it's different for every person and every family. So have you have you found that as well? Is that something else that's topical either with the association or even in just in your own practice? I do. Yeah, I do find that that people have also turned to, and it's a slippery slope. It may have started as a way of, again, coping tool to numb out, chill out in relation to strains, stressors around the pandemic, but then it starts to build momentum. But I, I agree with you, Christine, asking those very specific questions, because say, if you say, well, recreational use, how does each person define that? So sometimes it can be quite surprising to me what somebody may define as, as recreational use in terms of you know healthy guidelines and say, oh, this is this is actually concerning for their, their health. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fascinating thing is like when you look at like I think I think the government, the federal government did surveys of like what for say cannabis, for example. What are what are people actually using it for? And they they had this force rank list of the top 10 reasons. And the top six reasons are all connected to mental health. So people are partaking, but they're they're treating mental health conditions. So when you know why, like not, it's important not to make assumptions about why people use and find out the function of what they're getting out of it because it all it is all relevant. It's all fodder for what we're talking about, you know, in therapy. It's important stuff to address. Absolutely. Right? And you know, I, I work a lot with people who have chronic pain. And and sometimes people are are using you could say marijuana or or alcohol to help with the chronic pain. It would be nice if all the barriers that we face as Ontarians to find the right practitioner for ourselves and then just be able to just get the help we need uh, could be removed. And so I guess maybe that would be one of the questions I will ask my candidates, which is I try to find exactly how much they know about, about how kind of what the system is in a lot of ways and what their own experience in the system is if they accessed care for themselves or for their family and how did they find that right that yeah I think that's an excellent question yeah there's that aspect of if somebody's walked through those shoes either themselves or um, a family member uh, were they struggling to get care were they on a wait list um was there disjoin or disjointedness around the care that they were seeking and and um, being able to access it a hundred percent is there anything else around barriers to care you think is important to highlight either for therapists themselves you know whether they're members of the oamhp or not because there's other associations people can be members of they might be members of both they might be members of a national one i'm not too sure um, are there any like messages for, for them in particular that you'd like to share? A message for everybody. And, and I think this is changing, but it's not changing quickly enough is to say mental health is health. 
and a barrier to accessing care and a barrier to talking about the barriers is any stigma around mental health care and seeking mental health services. The more openness about that, um, that's going to reduce a barrier right there. If, you know, for example, we don't, we don't hide dentistry, right? Um, uh, yeah, but to talk about it openly and yeah, I think it's Howie Mandel said it once that if if you can leave work and be like, I got to leave at three today, I got a dentist appointment. Could you also say, I can leave at three, I got to go see my therapist. And if you're like, whoa, I wouldn't see that. I wouldn't say that's your own self-stigma. Like that is how stigma against ourselves shows up. Right? Maybe some people wouldn't tell the world they were to tell their floor they're going to the dentist anyway, right? Or just tell your boss, you know, but it's a, it's an easy comparable. Yeah. And, and it's that aspect of if there, if there feels that safety, that openness, um, even around in the workplace saying, okay, people need mental health support in the same way as they need that physical health support. You know, if somebody's broken their arm and they need accommodations at work, you know, having that, uh, that same conversation around mental health. Uh, but yeah, if somebody is able to say, yes, I'm, I'm going to see my therapist after work, does that create additional safety for people around that person? Yeah. And that, yeah. Especially if it's a leader or a, per, a people manager or a person in a position of power, right? It makes them seem human. That's awesome. Anything exciting coming up aside from this advocacy around the election for OAMHP um, stuff happening in the I don't know if you're privy to share if you're allowed to we, we don't have a final program yet but we're, we're we're excited we have existed for over 40 years and it was traditional for us to have an annual conference and the annual conference was a, a chance for practitioners to to network, to uh, to meet, to attend uh, workshops, to gain new knowledge um, and continuing education credits. And then when the pandemic hit um, and, and, you know, thanks to all of the, the staff and the board and committee members for pivoting things around and offering a virtual conference. And we've done a virtual conference um, successfully for the last two years, but this year, we're going to be returning to some face-to-face. We're going to be offering a hybrid conference, uh, September. Yeah, and, and the reason for hybrid is, um, while I don't like to talk about blessings of the pandemic, what we learned through the virtual realm is that we attracted people to the conference who previously may not have attended an OAMHP conference. No, not everyone can travel. Yeah, yeah, not everybody can travel. Um, and so this allowed people to connect. So coming up, we're, we're going to do, fingers crossed, a hybrid conference, September 29th to October 1st. And it will, you know, if you're in person, it's in Toronto. Um, and otherwise, you can connect, we'll have exhibitors, uh, we will have professionals delivering workshops, uh, chances to network. 
which I've, you know, I miss and uh, it will be nice to be able to see people face to face or virtually whatever works for that individual. No kidding. Is registration open yet for that or not yet? Um, so registration is not quite open for the conference yet, but there is, there's information. Look at the website for, you know, links to the conference. We'll include a link to that in the show notes for people that are interested in seeing what that opportunity is for sure. So I am conscious of time. Um, thank you so much for being here. I just want to summarize, you know, for all of us in this province, I think, I think everyone, even if you're not working in mental health or, you know, have had experience with a therapist, kind of has gotten the message. The awareness part, I hope, is over. Like, well, let's talk. We've got to be aware of it. It's like, okay, now what are we going to do about it, right? Everyone, if you're a human being with, you know, skin and eyeballs and a brain and a nervous system, you got mental health, right? It's just part of the healthcare of being a human. So in demanding that we get treatment for the neck up as well as the neck down, it's okay to ask our politicians about this because at the end of the day, they're the ones that administer this problem. Right. And that's what we pay them to do. And that's what they're responsible to us for as taxpayers. So don't be shy to ask those questions. There's wonderful resources out there about the types of questions you can ask and those conversations that you can have. And, and it doesn't hurt to ask questions. Right. The thing about the HST piece, you know, if you're seeing an RP, a registered psychotherapist, and paying HST and you don't want to have to pay HST, it's not fair. Right. So ask your, ask your candidate about that. Why? Because the thing about HST is that RPs shouldn't have to be paying HST because the, the rules about who pays HST and who doesn't and when you can apply to have that removed passed like two years ago, like just a quick backgrounder. In Canada, like five out of 10 provinces have to be regulated, meaning the government's getting all in there and making sure everyone's doing the right thing. And then that happened a while back. Like I think we're we're at six now, right? Yeah, there's, there's, okay, so I if I have yeah, if I have a moment, I can talk to the glitch there. <laughs> yeah, please do. So please the glitch do. there is yes. summer, but I think it's important yeah. for people to know the background. So we we you know you could say that there is regulation within the five plus provinces. The barrier that is now occurring. Um, is that in some provinces, the practice or the professional title is psychotherapist, registered psychotherapist, whereas in others, it's a counseling therapist. And so it, it becomes a matter of saying, then it's like, well, it's not the same profession. Now, having said that, I think it's very important to look at the scope of practice. So for example, if somebody applies to say the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario from another province, say they're registered um, in uh, Prince Edward Island as a, with the College of Counseling Therapy and they apply to Ontario, then they are going to get in via the Canadian free trade laws. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, trade agreement. So that person is going to be provided with uh, a, a license to practice within the province because of the Labor Mobility Act. Because whether you call yourself a mental health therapist, a psychotherapist, we're we're all pretty much providing. The it, same it, thing. It, yeah, if it's a it's a, a regulated title, a regulated practice providing um, psychotherapy, counseling therapy, 
so there's administrative and technical paperwork glitches, guys, that are making you pay HST when I think you shouldn't have to. I think a lot of people think you shouldn't have to. So it's a wonderful thing to bring forward and have a conversation about with uh, when you're voting and with your candidates. Yeah. And, and, and asking the candidate, are you aware that there is a, a, a professional group, a regulated professional group providing an essential service having to charge HST yeah, to deliver mental health services. I, I'm, I'm so grateful as a working therapist in this province that there is an association as strong as the OAMHP. I will say like, it was really nice for me. I was on the board for, I think two years about to just, you know, these are volunteer positions, right? Just to witness the amount of work that people are spending clearly just from a place of passion and caring about the profession and how we do these jobs um, on top of their regular work day is really phenomenal. And I feel really privileged and grateful that I had that opportunity and that I still connected to you and you're willing to come on my, my little podcast here to talk to people and share your knowledge and expertise because I think people really love hearing these kinds of, it's almost like an insider conversation right? Because nobody else has access to this information. Even as a therapist, I feel like if I wasn't, if I didn't volunteer to do the things that I did, I, I wouldn't know the things that I know now. Right. So it was so helpful, even to me, just as a practitioner, right? To have connections, the networking, to know the inner workings of the system, because I use all that information on behalf of all my clients. Yeah. And, and, and for you, I, I mean, your time on the board and, and yes, the passion of the board, the staff at OAMHP, but for you to have this podcast, to get that word out there and you clearly have a passion for this and, and, and uh, you know, thanking you for this opportunity to speak about these really important topics, especially in the context of uh, uh, a burgeoning election. So with that, I will say thank you. I will let you get on with your day. I thank really you, appreciate your time here. And hopefully this uh, spurs some great dinner table conversation and conversation with candidates on people's doorsteps. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. That's it for today, my friends. We hope you enjoy being a fly on the wall for this one. Leave me some messages uh, through the page on Anchor if you have any questions that you want follow up on. And please check the show notes for all the relevant links that we did discuss today. If you like the show, please like and share it. Share it in your social media. Tag us. Dig a little deeper therapy. And that kind of lets us know that we should keep doing this. And it will help the podcast show up in all the places that you do listen to podcasts. Until next time.